Testament. This is the book of Malachi, and it's chapter number four, and that's what we're at today. And what we're going to be doing is concluding the seventh of seven messages in this series that we have undertaken throughout the book of Malachi for the last six weeks leading up to this week. Uh, the title of the series has been Seven Key Steps in Your Walk with God, and it's been kind of interesting. I've really enjoyed the study. I know a lot of other people have commented that they've enjoyed the study. Malachi is not a book that you typically hear a lot of Bible studies on. It's not a long book of the Bible, but it sure does have a lot of great truth, and that's the way God's Word is, amen? It's always got a lot of great truth. If you'll spend some time looking at it in some detail, and that's what we've done. Let me just give you a quick review of some of the history as we conclude this series, just to remind us, in case for any reason you may be here for the first time or you weren't with us for the whole series, um, historically this book, of course, is written to Israel, and it's written about 400 B.C. So it is chronologically the last book written of all the Old Testament books. It's also in the order of books in your Bible, obviously the last one in the order before we come to the New Testament. Um, this would, if you're familiar with biblical history, this would be about between 50 and 100 years after the return from captivity. Israel was captive under Babylon and Persia, and then they returned to Israel. They returned and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple, and the people that were a part of that with Nehemiah and Ezra as they returned back to the land, they, they rebuilt the temple and expected the new temple to be even more glorious than the old, but the problem was it wasn't. And they were very discouraged and they were very disappointed. You see, they rebuilt the temple with the anticipation of the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies that the Lord himself would come down and inhabit his temple. But the Lord had yet to come down and inhabit his temple. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the coming of the Lord, his, his actual return to the planet. That's kind of the theme of this book. It's actually kind of the theme of the whole Bible. But what happened was the people were getting very discouraged because they expected more. They expected some glory. They expected some power, and there just wasn't any. And this book being the last written record of the Old Testament, we find that then God is silent for that time of 400 years until he breaks the silence with his physical coming to planet Earth. That's Christmas. That's what we're in the season of celebrating. So until Jesus showed up, it was about 400 years. And during that 400-year time, there was no new revelation. There were no new prophecies given. There was no new scripture being written. And so the people that wanted to walk with the Lord, all they had to go by was the word of God. That's kind of like our life today, isn't it? There's no new revelation coming for us anymore. And so frequently in the book of Malachi, he addresses the priesthood and some of their duties. Okay, so if we make a practical application to our lives today, we are near the end of the church age. And spiritually speaking, we've seen that we all, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, are called a holy and a royal priesthood, meaning that in the Old Testament, the priests were the only one that could go directly into the presence of God and intercede for man and come back to man with the word of God. Here, in this case, we all have the right. The veil has been torn since the crucifixion. We can all go directly into the throne room of God and, and can serve that effective ministry as priests, going directly before the Lord and talking with him. We have direct access because of what Jesus did. God also gave us his final written revelation in the scriptures, and we're in a time now where there is no new revelation. We're in a time where you could say where there's silence from the Lord. There's nothing new coming, but there is, if you want to walk with God today, you have to do what they had to do during that time and just rely on what God's word says, and that's a good application for us, and ultimately that silence will be broken only with the literal physical return of Jesus Christ to planet earth. We now know that is his second coming. That is a prophecy we'll be seeing in chapter four here in just a second. Now, if you've been with us for this series, you'll have recognized that the book of Malachi, or if you just go back and read it again this afternoon, it's a short book, it's full of rebukes. I mean, it's full of one thing after another that the Lord tells Israel that they have blown and they have done wrong. And we have tried to understand the context of those rebukes with an eye towards learning from their mistakes. So if we can see what they did wrong and how God rebuked them, if we can just learn from that and do it right, right, then that can actually help us. And so that's where we got the series emphasis, seven key steps, seven messages 
So we have seen those seven messages. I put them all in your notes just for a review. So if you were to go back and study, you can see the seven key steps that are laid out throughout the book of Malachi. In chapter number one are steps one and two. Don't doubt God's love and keep up with the details. In chapter number two, we saw steps three and four, understanding cause and effect and the importance of guarding your marriage. In chapter number three, we saw steps five and six, where your personal choices really do matter and that you need to avoid the snare of materialism. And today we're going to wrap up this series with just one message in chapter four. There's only six short verses, and the title will be to be aware of the coming of the Lord, the Lord's soon coming. And it's important to understand end times theology in relation to your walk with the Lord today, because what you believe about the return of the Lord to planet earth absolutely affects your daily walk and the choices that you make today as we will see as we get into this. So if you just follow along, I'm going to read chapter 4 of Malachi, starting in verse number 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse." Let's pray and let's jump into it. Heavenly Father, we're thankful as always for the truth of your word and our prayer, Lord, right now is that as we have spent time lifting up your name, as we have worshiped you, as we have witnessed the testimonies of many who are following you, as we now humble ourselves before your word, we pray that you would do what only you can do and that is have your Holy Spirit be our teacher that he would be our guide, that you, by the revelation of the scripture, by helping us to walk through it systematically within the context you you desire, would come away with real practical application, real things that each and every one of us need to do so that we can guard our walk with you, so that we can walk with you more closely. And for all of us that might say that we have enjoyed a walk with you, we always want to walk with you more closely. So Lord, I pray that you would change lives. I pray that we would meet you here today now. And we pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I want us to see, and it's basically in the first three verses, is to look to future judgment. To look to future judgment. It says, for behold, that's looking at something, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. So, We need to keep an eye on this fact that there is coming a day where there is going to be a a judgment, and that day is going to bring severe judgment. It says, behold, the day cometh. Now, for those of you that are less familiar with the detailed Bible study of the scriptures here, that phrase that seems like such a simple phrase, the day, I mean, it could refer to any. Behold, the day cometh. There's coming some day that will be a day of judgment. That's really not exactly, I mean, that is true, but that's a very simplistic way to look at it because when the Bible uses the phrase, the day, it is very specific in its application. It's referred to a couple of more times in this passage as the day of the Lord. And later on, it's called the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And literally what he's talking about, this day, the day of the Lord, it's also called other things. It is really the theme of the whole Bible. In other places in the Bible, without giving the reference, sometimes it's called the day of the Lord's vengeance. Sometimes it's called the day of the Lord's wrath. It's called the day of the Lord's anger. And sometimes it's called his fierce anger. In referencing that day, it says, for example, that the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon will be turned to blood. It says that day will be darkness and no light. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse number 10 it says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 
the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It's going to be a day of judgment. And it's going to be a day of judgment for the unsaved. It says back in Malachi chapter 4 in verse number 1, The day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. It's referring to people who refuse to humble themselves before a holy God. They are proud. The root of all sin is pride. And wickedness, they that do wickedly, that would be the fruit. So you have the root and the fruit. And all it is is somebody who refuses to surrender their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a day of judgment. It is coming. You can take it to the bank. It is 100% guaranteed. In the book of Joel, in chapter number 3 and in verse 14, referring to that day, interestingly, it calls it the valley of decision. It calls it the valley of decision. In other words, lost people who are characterized by the pride and the wickedness, God is calling to make a decision in light of this future judgment that is, they're being warned of. So if we're going to look to the future judgment, letter A, you need to look to the future judgment with urgency. You need to look to the future judgment with urgency. Notice it says that they will burn up. They will be stubble. It's referring to the people. It's not just the elements. It's not just the earth. It's not just scorching the trees and and the buildings. It says they. Can I just tell you, this is going to be worse than any holocaust or injustice or genocide or any world tragedy you have ever heard or seen or read about in your entire life. The world has yet to see what this day is going to be like when the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes that will burn with unquenchable fire. And worse than that, it says it shall leave them neither root nor branch. I want you to notice it shall leave them. Who are them? They, they are those who will burn. They are those who are stubble. The context, it will leave them, the lost people, the unbelievers, at the day of the coming judgment of the Lord, it will leave the lost people with neither root nor branch. What exactly does that mean? Well, comparing Scripture with Scripture and letting the Bible define itself, it is the greatest book in the world and has the ability to do that. The root is defined for you in Revelation chapter 22, which happens to be the last chapter of your New Testament. I, Jesus, in verse 16, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Well, what about the branch? Well, interestingly enough, throughout the Old Testament, we have four specific prophecies of the coming of the Lord. And the Lord in his coming is referred to as a branch or as the branch. And in each case, the B is capitalized because it refers to more than just some illustration of a twig. Jeremiah 23 and verse number five. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. That's a foreshadowing of the coming of the Lord Jesus to set up his kingdom. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse number 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and the fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Zechariah chapter 6 and verse number 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus uh, speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number one, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Well, that's very interesting because you have four different, and there's only four, by the way, instances where the branch is referred to as the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, if we just go back to our original point, we need to look forward to the future judgment with urgency because as Joel says, it's the valley of decision and the people who don't receive Jesus Christ as their Savior will burn up like ashes. They will burn up like stubble. It is a serious, serious deal. And it says when that day comes, it will leave them the way it found them, neither root nor branch. Now, I want you to notice these four mentions of the branch, for those of you that like some Bible study. In Jeremiah 23, and I don't know if you can throw that back up there again, but in Jeremiah 23, it says, I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king. Notice that. Zechariah 3.8, it says, Behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Notice in Zechariah 6.12, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. And in Isaiah 11.1, 1, And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So we have four references to the branch. One is a king. One is a servant. One is a man. One is the Lord. Does that sound familiar to any of you? We have four testimonies of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew represents him as a king. The Gospel of Mark represents him as a servant. The Gospel of Luke represents him as a man. And the Gospel of John represents him as the Lord. The branch is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the time comes for the great and dreadful day of the Lord and that coming judgment, as it found people without the root and without the branch, that will be the reason why. This terrible, horrific judgment will come on them. It says, when the Lord returns, it shall leave them, like I said, in the same state it found them. So in your notes, I put it this way. There'll be no second chances. There'll be no second chances. When it's done, it's done. If you've ever known people, and I have, that you've shared the gospel with, and they could reiterate to you the facts of the gospel, but in their heart they just enjoy their sin and they're putting it off. Well, maybe someday. Maybe eventually I'll get around to that. Well, that's risky. That's dangerous. Somehow in their mind they just think that when it all happens, they'll have an ability last minute to repent and get right. But when this happens, it says it comes like a thief in the night. Thieves come at night when you're sleeping, when you're away, when you're not aware, and it's going to be too late. Again, the last chapter of the New Testament, giving us light on the last chapter of the Old Testament. Revelation 22, verses 11 and 12 this time, where it says, referring to the end, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, hallelujah, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly. There's the context. And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Therefore, there's an urgency to get the gospel message out and to get the gospel message out now. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 2. For he saith, I have heard thee in an accepted time, and in the day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Again, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. And listen, friends, we're, if you're a part of this church and you hear the gospel preached a lot and you have a decent amount of Bible knowledge and you're probably fully capable of taking the truth of the Scripture and helping somebody else who doesn't know it to know it. The question is, do you? That's the real question. Uh, l- let, me, let me do it this way. Let's start over here. Maybe you're here today. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you just wandered in. Maybe you've been coming for a long time. Maybe for whatever reason, I don't know. In your heart, you're that guy. You're that lady who has just always said, okay, I'm not against it, but later. I'll get to it later. Can I encourage you? 
in light of the future coming judgment, in light of the admonition of God, in light of the begging and the pleading of the Holy Spirit on your heart, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of judgment. Now is the time of salvation, excuse me, because the day of judgment is coming. Listen, why would you want to wait? I mean, really, why would you want to wait? In fact, if you find yourself in that position where you're not sure you're saved, really, forget the rest of the sermon that's coming. Get this one right. In fact, let me encourage you, get it right now. Just bow your head where you're at now. Cry out to God now. I'll keep talking. You talk to God. It's okay. Get it right now. Because nothing is more important. You don't want to be a part of them. You don't want that. But if you know that you've received Christ and you know that he's rescued you from that penalty of sin and wow, that's awesome, then let me just encourage you, Jude, there's only one chapter, verse number three. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Christians, we have got to be earnestly contending. We've got to be out seeking people. We've got to be going after people to help them understand that there is a day coming. Listen, y'all, you watch the news. It is a crazy, crazy world around us. And a lot of people are interested in all the political ramifications of an election that's coming up. And, and you ought to be interested in who to vote for based on the right issues. I get it. But my point is this. Terrible, terrible things are happening all around us. And it's all just lining up. I'm just telling you, you don't know how much time you have left. None of us do. Man, we've got to be about the Lord's business now. We have to look forward to this judgment with an urgency that's critically important but there is another way to look to this coming advent of jesus christ and that's letter b not just with urgency but with thankfulness but with thankfulness he shifts gears here because it says it shall leave them and he talks about the lost but in verse two he shifts he says but unto you and literally the context was Israel, but representing the people of God. But unto you, believers, unto you that fear my name, unto you, Christian, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. Hallelujah. Unto them, that son is the thing that burns up anything that gets too close to it. But not unto you. Unto you, the son of righteousness is a healer. Unto you, the son of righteousness brings healing. Listen, we all suffer from the ultimate disease. It's called sin. And we've all suffered with it our entire lives. But not after the Lord comes. You'll not suffer with it one second more. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number five. And ye know that he, referring to Jesus Christ, was manifested. He showed up to take away our sins. To take them away. Not to just put them in remission. Not to just help us cope with them. Jesus Christ's literal, physical manifestation was for the purpose of taking them away, and we'll all be healed. And let me just tell you, friends, every year that I get older, it becomes more and more real to me when I think about stuff that don't work right and looking forward to the day when everything does work right. And, and we make the physical analogies, but the truth of the matter is, all the sickness and disease and problems in life is a result of sin, every bit of it. We don't even realize how cool it's going to be. And I can say that with authority because the Bible says it in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number 9, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. You've seen some beautiful things in your life. You've heard some beautiful things in your life. And you have 
an unbelievable ability to imagine some wonderful things that maybe you've never even seen or heard. None of it compares with the real reality that God's going to bring to bear when he returns to this planet. I mean, you can't even dream it up. That's how good it's going to be. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine trying to describe to somebody who was born blind the concept of color. Try to describe blue to somebody who was born blind. And then try and describe red. And then try and describe yellow. It kind of just doesn't have any meaning, does it? But then one day, they can see. And when they can see, there's no need for description. Life is living color. Life is so far beyond the scope of what they ever could have imagined. That's what it's going to be like when the Lord comes for us. There's no more sickness. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no more tears. There's no more disappointment. And most of all, there's no more death because we're delivered from it all. And in his literal first coming, when he died on the cross for our sins, he offered to us the opportunity when we bow our knee to him and we surrender our hearts to him to be delivered once and for all from the penalty of sin. And those of us that have enjoyed that shout hallelujah and sing his praises and we're so thankful that we know our future is secure even though it's still tough. So we're delivered from the penalty of sin at salvation but then we're delivered from the power of sin as we apply these things we're learning in Malachi as we continue to walk with the Lord as we continue to live a life in line with his word. When we do that he gives us the strength and the power to not give in to the power of sin. But man, when he comes back again, not just the penalty and not just the power, y'all, we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. Can you imagine when sin doesn't reign in your mortal body anymore? Can you imagine when there's no more choice in your mind? Should I do good? Should I do bad? Should I do good? Should I do bad? Hmm, I don't know. (laughs) Which is our daily life, by the way. When there's only good and then another choice, oh yeah, that's a good one too. No more sin. It doesn't even exist. It's not even an option anymore. That's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for us who have received him. I can't imagine not wanting that. That's something we can look forward to. No more temptation, y'all. None. It's gone. So a couple other things I wanted to point out. Some things we can look forward to. First off, joy. It says, and ye shall go forth and grow up That's pretty cool. You know what that means? I think a couple of verses will pop on the screen, like 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and 12. That means that your understanding will be complete. You're not going to think and act like a child anymore. You will be complete. You're going to grow up. And Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6, everybody will be complete, mature, fully grown. Jesus Christ will have completed the work that he is now working in all of us. That means that we're all done with immature, childish behavior, even among Christians. Imagine that. I mean, that alone would be worth it. Listen, it's all worth it. It's awesome. And it just gets awesomer. It does. We can look forward to joy. We can also look forward to justice. So you go forth and grow up, but then it says, and ye shall tread down the wicked, in verse 3. Can I say, ye shall tread down the wicked that have been treading you down for a long, long time. It says that we'll tread them as ashes under our feet. The Bible says that we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ in a couple of places. I think we've got 2 Timothy 2. 
we will rule and reign with him, it says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 10. And when that all comes to bear, finally, y'all, finally, forget what you see on CNN. Forget what you wish our government did. There will be some real justice. There will be some real justice. Which means the wicked are going to get it in the neck. Now that doesn't make us rejoice per se. But can I just, can I just be honest with you? Some of you might like this or not. I don't know. But I, I know. I got the microphone. Listen, don't act too spiritual like we shouldn't be happy about that. Right? I mean, come on. That's a day I'm looking forward to. And deep down, if you're honest, I'll bet that's a day you're looking forward to too. You know why? Because not only will all the corrupt politicians, all the abusers of men and women, you, all the baby killers that sell their body parts, all the child molesters and the terrorists, they're going to get theirs. They're going to get theirs. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't want to go out and reach them. We want to go out and reach them while there's time. This is God's doing, by the way. But I'm going to tell you something. I'll be glad when that day comes. I'll be glad when we don't have to fight sin anymore. I'll be glad when I don't have the internal struggles of temptation. I'll be glad when we don't have the external persecution that comes from people who are led by the spirit of the Antichrist. Aren't you thankful for all that God's done for you? Can you see how living your life with a view towards that end will change your walk today? I can. All right, let's go to the second point. We're going to look to God's word. Look to God's word. I mentioned it in the introduction that when Malachi wrote this, the Old Testament was finished. It was God's last word that he was giving For about 400 years then, it was silent. God didn't give anything new until Jesus came. And so what does he say in the last words he's giving, in the last chapter of the last words that he's giving? He says, remember the law of Moses, my servant. Remember. Remember the words that Moses gave you in Horeb. Horeb is literally Sinai. That's where he received the commandments and the laws. Okay? So he takes them back. And he's like, I'm not going to have new revelation for you. But I want you to remember what I've already given you. And that's a good encouragement for all of us. So literally, of course, the law is the Torah. It's the first five books of your Bible. It's the Pentateuch. But that phrase, that term, the law in the Bible, is also used generally to refer to all of God's word in its totality. For example, in Isaiah chapter 2, And verse number three, and many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Because the law generally used throughout the scripture refers to not just specifically the first five books of Moses, but it refers to, in its totality, the the law is are the commandments, they are the statutes, they are the judgments, it is the word of God. And it's interesting because when he tells us, hey, y'all really need to remember the word, you need to look to God's word, he says the law of Moses, he doesn't just say the law of Moses, he says the law of Moses, my servant. Isn't that interesting? So in the man Moses, what you have in your Bible is a great pattern for ministry because Moses is an amazing servant of God. So as a result, we need to do what I've put in your notes. We need to read the Bible with the goal of serving, not just learning. And in order to do that, you need to develop some meekness. So he says, remember the law of Moses the guy who served me. Remember the law of him. Remember the law that I gave to the guy who stands out as a pattern and an example 
for service and ministry. Remember his law. So for us, we need, when we read the Bible, we need to look at the law of God with the goal of how can we serve. And the only way you're going to be any good at it is if you have the primary characteristic that Moses had. And Moses was meek. And that's what it says in Numbers chapter 12 and verse number 3. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. We talk about Solomon, be the wisest man. Moses was the most meek man on the face of the earth. And if you don't know, you need to know what meekness really is and maybe more importantly what it is not. Because to be meek most certainly is not to be, say it with me, weak. To be meek is not to be weak. In fact, au contraire. It literally means, I speak French, it means powerful. It's you're, you're powerful, but you're under control. You could use the word tame. Picture a lion in the circus. Very powerful, but he's been tamed. He's under control. You're just chill. <laughs> Thank you. You're submissive. You're, how about this? I'm just giving you synonyms. You're under authority. You've got all the power that God has for you, but you're a man under authority. Meek. Well, what's our authority? Well, it's, it's obvious. It's the Word of God. Our authority is the Word of God, so we are to submit to that. The Word of God is to rule in our hearts and lives. And when the Word of God rules in our hearts and lives, then we demonstrate meekness. It is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So if we're to serve the Lord, the only possible way that we can truly serve the Lord is in accordance with the instruction book. Amen? So 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 5 says, And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. Because if you don't play according to the rules, you made up your own rules. And you don't really receive the prize. You can't be crowned for that. You cheated. 1 Corinthians 9, similar illustration, verses 24 and 25. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that you may obtain. Run to win. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it, meaning the athletes, to obtain a corruptible crown, but we, believers, an incorruptible. So the crown, the reward, is only given to those that run the race, and you have to run the race lawfully. Remember the law. You have to run the race according to the law, according to the rules. It's the only possible way that you're really going to win. It's the only possible way. That's, that's walking with the Lord, right? You can't walk with the Lord and have no clue about what he says in his Bible. You have to know what he says, but you have to not just know it. You have to apply it. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, he says. So we look to God's word. Our third point, we look to what's next. We're going to look to what's next. Last couple of verses. And he says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, if you were with us last couple of weeks in Malachi 3, we already studied some about this idea that there is a, the factual prophecy that Elijah must first come before the Lord will actually come. And if you're interested, you can go back and listen to that message where we compared Elijah and John the Baptist, and John the Baptist could have fulfilled the coming of Elijah, but only because Israel rejected him did he not completely fulfill the coming of Elijah. That was a very interesting Bible study. So we already kind of talked about the fact that Elijah must first come. But that's not really the emphasis I want to give today. Today I want us to look at this, because God tells Israel, literally, obviously, literally, historically, what to look for next. 
So God's done writing his word for the Old Testament Jew. And what does he say you need to look for next? Not my coming. My coming is not what you look for next. What you look for next is Elijah. Because when Elijah comes, then I'll be coming. But there is something next, and it's not me, it's Elijah. That's what you need to see. That's what he's trying to tell them. Before the literal, physical presence of the Lord, there is something else to look for first. For Israel, it's Elijah, but not for the church. The church ain't looking for Elijah. The church is to look for the rapture. That's what we're to look for. We're to look for the rapture of the church. The word rapture literally just means the catching away. It is that day that is talked about where the Lord will descend in the clouds with a shout, with the trump, the archangel, the voice of God, and we, the dead in Christ, shall rise first. We that are alive and remain, we caught up in the air, and ever will we be with the Lord. Okay, it is the time when we meet the Lord as his family in the air. The Lord returns halfway and calls us out. He doesn't physically, fully, completely return. The soles of his feet do not yet land on the Mount of Olives. It does not yet happen. The church is not to look for Elijah. The church is to look for an event prior to the actual second coming physically of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the church, it's the rapture. That's a really important thing. Those of you who are interested in prophecy, those of you that like to listen to the guys who talk about prophecy, those of you that spend your money on books in Christian bookstores about the things we should look for in prophecy, and everybody talks about Israel, and everybody talks about Jerusalem, and everybody talks about the political state, and the Jews returning from Russia and going to the Holy Land, and are they going to rebuild the temple, and have they identified the priesthood, and they're putting together the garments, and everybody's looking for something else. When the Bible says, don't look to Israel, don't look to the temple, they got their business, they'll take care of it. You, church, look to the coming of the Lord in the rapture. That's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for something, that blessed hope. What is that? The glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope is the rapture of the church. That's what it is, and that's what we are to be looking for. There's no other prophetic event that has to take place before the rapture of the church. And just like Israel is at the end of the jumping off point of the Old Testament, he says, look to what's next. And it's not me, it's Elijah. The church where we're at today, we're at the same point. We're at the jumping off point of the end of the New Testament era. And he says, hey church, don't look for my physical return. Look for meeting me in the air. That's what he says look for. Nevertheless, this is an Old Testament book. This is a book about the prophecy of the literal physical second coming of the Lord. There are prophetic things that you need to be aware of. And so I want to help you to to understand that. Because he does say, I send you Elijah the prophet. So we need to talk a little bit about prophecy. I mean, I think that's fair. It is a prophecy. God is telling you that something is going to happen before it happens. That's prophecy, which he's really good at, by the way. And he does it all the time. So for reference, Isaiah 42 and verse 9. Notice this. This is a couple of verses we're going to look at worth highlighting in your Bible if you do that. Isaiah 42, 9, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Notice this, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Well, you know, that's handy. (laughs) Don't you think? I mean, if you knew, listen, wouldn't it be great to never be caught by surprise? I mean, isn't it cool if you're like, "God, God, if you would only tell me. Well, he's like, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to tell you. Are you listening, knucklehead? I mean, you know, come on. That's what he says to me. I mean, this is my, I'm, I'm divulging my personal relationship with the Lord to you. <laughs> he speaks to me in this, these terms. I hear those words loud and clear. <laughs> Before they spring forth, I'm warning you. I'm not going to let you just be surprised. And again, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. From the very beginning of time, God declared what would happen at the very end of time. And you know where he declared it? Pop quiz. (laughs) Right here. (laughs) You got you a copy. And if not, steal one out of the pew and take it home. If you need it that bad. (laughs) So there are some prophetic signs in Malachi 4, continuing with your notes. There are some prophetic signs in Malachi 4 that you should be aware of. If you're going to study the Bible, you need to be aware of these things. And the first one is Moses and Elijah are both mentioned. Now that's, that's really important. The Bible student will recognize that these two guys show up together at really important times. Okay? So in Revelation chapter 11 um, is the story, and I'm going to read a couple of verses out of Revelation 11. But there's a story of two guys. There's two witnesses. This is the time of the tribulation. The church now is already gone, and there's this time period that most people think is seven years, okay, of roughly that time. And God is going to pour out all these plagues from the book of Revelation before his literal physical return to earth. And among the things that are going to happen is we have two witnesses. They are unnamed in Revelation chapter 11 that show up. They're really cool guys. By the way, read Revelation 11 about these two guys, and I'm just telling you, They got a great job description. I mean, if the Lord were just taking volunteers, who wanted to be one of these two guys? I would. I mean, they're going to die, but not for long. I mean, it's cool. So let me just read a few verses. I didn't prepare this. It may not pop up. That's okay. Just listen to Revelation 11, starting at verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. 1,260 days, if you count out a 30-day month, is exactly three and a half years. That's significant. Then he goes on and he says, these are the two olive trees. Well, that's your next reference in your notes. That's Zechariah 4, 11 to 14. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now, here's the cool job description. If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devoureth the enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. How many times do you wish you had that? (laughs) Dog, you hurt me, man. (sighs) I'm going to be awesome. Who are these guys, man? Verse 6 is going to tell you. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Who did that in the Old Testament? Elijah. And have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Who did that? Moses. And it goes down and say verse 9, and people and kindreds and tongues of the nations, they're going to kill these guys. In verse 7, See their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. I mean, these guys, they're ticked at these guys. They won't even bury them. Verse 10, They that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Sounds kind of like Christmas time. Making merry and sending gifts to one another. This is kind of like Happy Dead Prophets Day. And they're celebrating. If you took the time and went to Zechariah 4, we do have some of those verses up for you. And so in Zechariah 4, you have these two. That's the book just before Malachi, by the way. And the important thing of the Zechariah 4 comparison of the olive trees, it says that these guys are these two men that stood beside the Lord. Well, that's interesting because if you go into Matthew chapter 17, we have the story of Jesus who's transfigured on the mount after he's been praying. And when he's transfigured on the mount, Peter, James, and John are supposed to be praying with him. They fall asleep and they wake up. And when they see Jesus in his glorified form, they see two guys with him. And lo and behold, it's Moses and Elijah. So the Bible defines itself literally of who's who and what's going on. The point is, is at the end of Malachi chapter 4, it should be no surprise to you that the two identified characters 
associated with the second coming of the Lord, associated with prophecy, associated with the end, and the setting up of what you're supposed to be looking at are Moses and Elijah. It should be no surprise. Another prophetic sign is this idea of the son of righteousness. The son of righteousness. Now the sun, the burning star in the sky, is a trinity of sorts and therefore is a picture, an illustration of the trinity of God. It has three different types of rays that are emitted from it. It has the X-rays, which are the ultraviolet, the, the, the most powerful of all the rays emitted from the sun. They cannot be seen. They cannot be felt but they are the most powerful. That would be likened unto God the Father. You do have the light rays, I mean the visible portion of the spectrum. That would be like God the Son. He is the visible form of an otherwise invisible God, Jesus Christ. And you have heat rays that are emitted from the sun. Those are the ones that can't be seen, but they can be felt. That would be like the Holy Spirit of God as he lives in your heart and in your life. You have another phrase, the day of the Lord. We talked a little bit about it before. In Revelation 1 and verse number 10, John, as he writes the Revelation, says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Some people erroneously apply that to mean that I was in the Spirit on a Sunday because our culture tends to assign Sunday as the Lord's day. That's not what John is referring to. John says that God teleported me forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. That's what literally he's saying. We refer to that as the millennium. The word millennium is not in your Bible because that's a word that comes from Latin, literally meaning a thousand years. Mill, 1,000, annum, years. The millennium is a thousand years. So it's the 1,000 year period of time when the Lord is on his throne in Jerusalem. We know that from 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 8. Behold, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. So if there's one thing you learn, you ought to know this one. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years one day. So the day of the Lord is a 1,000-year day, okay? That's the way God is defining things. We're going to play by his rules, right? So the sun of righteousness arises with healing in his wings. So the sun arises. When does the sun rise? Smarter than a fifth grader says, (laughs) in the morning, at the dawn of the day. It's the dawn of the day of the Lord. So in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, it says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day, that's the day, until the day dawn. And the day star, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, actually we saw that weeks ago, and the day star arise in your hearts, that's the rapture of the church. So for us now, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are to live by the word of God, right, until God calls us up out of here at the dawn of the day, the millennial day. And so the dawn, this is in your notes, of course, because God is painting a picture every single day when you wake up in the morning, he's trying to paint a picture. The dawn is in the morning, which is also referred to as the fourth watch of the night. We're giving you some prophetic signs that when you go back and read your Bible, it can help you. The dawn is in the morning, the fourth watch of the night. Matthew 14, 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. That is a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ returning to his disciples in the midst of the seas, which represent nations. Mark chapter 13 and verse number 35. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. Those are the four watches of the night. There's 12 hours in the day, there's 12 hours in the night. The fourth watch of the night is the dawn of the next day. That's the morning. So the first watch of the night is even. The second watch of the night is midnight. The third watch is the cock crowing. They always crow before it gets light out. And the fourth watch is the morning. That's what it is. That's the dawn. So you start comparing some of these things and you realize that the age of the church is only going to be a couple of thousand years, give or take. It's going to be like two days. There's a lot of reasons. I, listen, we just don't have time to do this today. But the church age is only going to last a couple of thousand years. 
How do you know that? Well, even lost people know that. I mean, it's intuitive. Listen. Okay, I'm old and getting older all the time. When I went to school, they called a period of time around 500 A.D. to about 1500 A.D. We used to call it the Dark Ages. And there's a reason why it was called the Dark Ages because in Europe, the Roman Catholic Church ran everything and spiritually speaking, there was no light of the gospel. Well, when political correctness kicked in, and so for you younger folk, you may have never even heard of the Dark Ages because nobody calls them the Dark Ages because that's just not very nice. So now they call them the Middle Ages, right? It makes, it makes everybody feel better. They just call them the Middle Ages. That's easier. Well, they don't even realize what they did. Because if 500 to 1500 is the middle, they just decided when the end is. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> well, look, if they can get it, why can't you get that? Listen. Prophecy is a beautiful, wonderful Bible study, and we could spend hours, and it's fun, it's great. People flock to prophecy Bible studies. The truth of the matter is, we need to walk with God today because we have our eye on the soon coming of the Lord, and soon and very soon, I might add. The point is, it's almost 2016, y'all. Do you realize what time it is? I mean... Don't, don't misunderstand me, but do you realize that regardless of who you vote in as our next president, this stuff is going to happen? Do you, you need to know that. Your favorite candidate is not the Savior of the world. Jesus is the only one qualified. And that's where your hope is. I'm listening, vote. I don't care. That's great. You should. The point is, don't get too caught up in things that really don't matter in comparison to things that really do that's my advice to you. Because all these things must and will come to pass. Okay, so let's wrap it up with this and we're done. Just before the literal second advent, God wants to accomplish some things. Literally through Elijah, verse number six is what we're dealing with. It says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Let me just make a real quick practical application for you and we'll be done for today. Turning the hearts of the fathers toward the children is emphasizing a nurturing relationship. Spiritually speaking in the church, we call that discipleship. We call that discipleship. So, as the time draws nearer, we who might consider ourselves fatherly in the, in the faith ought to be having our hearts turned towards nurturing relationships and raising up children in the faith. And it says to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. So conversely, that's an attitude of respect and submission and obedience to leadership. Both of which significantly affect your ability to walk with the Lord, wouldn't you say? And he wraps it up with this last sentence phrase, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Let me just say to you, it's not surprising that the entire body of revelation in the old testament ends with the word curse and the entire body of revelation of the new testament which is ultimately the entire body of revelation in revelation chapter 22 verses 20 and 21 he which testifieth these things saith these are the last verses of your whole bible Surely I come quickly. There's your context. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The last prayer in your Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The last word of the entire Bible. Amen. So be it. May it be so. Listen, my question for you, are you aware of God's soon return? Are you ready for that? If you're not sure that you're saved... Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And if you know that you are saved, man, let's look forward to that thing with some urgency and some thankfulness. Look to God's word. Let it reign in our hearts. And let's just consider what he wants to do in our lives.
Look for what's next. Live your life looking for the right things because your view of the end absolutely affects how you walk with the Lord now. Let's pray together.